0: From 2400 Sports,
1: Odyssey, and Major League Baseball. This is the PBP Voices of Baseball. We bring you the people who bring you the game.
0: Hello, hello, and welcome into episode four of the PBP Voices of Baseball. Pretty cool because today we have an absolute living legend. This is the first broadcaster that we interview on this podcast. Who is a member of baseball's Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Marty Brenneman won the Ford C. Frick Award in the year 2000. I can tell you that next month we'll talk to another Hall of Famer. And there's a couple others on our wish list. Stay tuned all summer long. But with Marty, it's an OG. It's, um, it's a guy we get a true sense of play-by-play history from talking to. Dating back 70 years or so. Folks, he's going to bring up a Dodgers announcer before Vin Scully in this conversation. That broadcaster, by the way, did games in a really unique way. And I realized it's a form of baseball broadcasting that you may not know about, that a lot of people don't know about. We're going to touch on it at the end of the podcast a little bit more. Um, In terms of actually doing the job of play-by-play, you will hear Marty Brenneman talk about some old-school methodology, which is the way he learned, and it was cutting-edge at the time. What he used to keep score, oh my God, it might be my favorite thing that I've learned in this entire process. We'll talk about it. Anybody out there listening for the first time? You? Oh, you there in the back having a drink on the patio. Well, welcome, welcome. Come on in. Feel free to approach the booth. Uh, The first thing I ever wanted to be was a play-by-play guy. And now? Here in my 50s, I've unexpectedly gotten a shot. I've done 12 innings of MLB regular season play-by-play. It's a long story. Listen to episode one. But I became fascinated with the job and the craft, and I've pushed that energy into this podcast series where I get to ask the very best to ever do it, how and why they do it. So consider this a love letter to the craft and a teaching tool and hopefully a vessel for meaningful baseball-adjacent conversation. Um, okay, mentioned Marty Brenneman is an OG and original gangster. If this is the apex, uh, this is the zenith, this is the pinnacle, this is the peak of who we get, that's pretty good. 46 years as the voice of the Cincinnati Reds for Marty, he replaced a young kid named Al Michaels. I wonder whatever became of that kid. Here are some of the moments we didn't get a chance to talk about with Marty. Three World Series wins, two with the Big Red Machine and one with the Nasty Boys and Lou Piniella. Five no-hitters, including the only one that Tom Seaver ever threw in 1978. Imagine how good the stories he does give us are. A couple of all-timer moments coming up. We begin by discussing the current Cubs radio booth that has been so good and welcoming to me, and they are unsurprisingly old friends of Marty's as well. All right, what a pleasure to be joined by by Marty Brenneman. And Marty, you mentioned the warmth and the kindness of Pat Hughes and Ron Coomer. And, yeah. and, and and that's that's where I get to do what you did for so many outstanding years. I just get to do it a tiny little bit, but at least <laughs> I get to do it with those guys because those guys are about as good as they come, right?
2: Oh, yeah, they they but Pat's been a very, very dear friend of mine for a long, long time, and we talked during the off season. and um, even before Ron came, uh, 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 Santo was a good buddy of mine, and Steve Stone and that whole bunch. and and of course, Tom worked up there for ten years uh, with harry and and the broadcasters. So I have a special uh, 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 affection for those guys that have done and are doing now Cubs baseball. Um, I think Coomber is, is uh, a, a gem, and I think Cub fans are very fortunate to have him. And, of course, Pat uh, Pat's a Hall of Famer. I mean, there's no question about that, and I just think he's, uh, he's uh, top of the chart.
0: Well, um, Marty, I, you know, I was thinking about where to start with you, and I got to say that the goal, of course, in baseball is to get a hit. And it's the hardest thing there is to do in sports. I'm convinced of that. Maybe some golfers would talk about hitting a green in regulation, or, or hitting the fairway with regularity. But yeah. you know, hit, hit, hitting a round ball with, a, with a bat, and, and getting a hit. And and you ever do the math on how many hits of Pete Rose's you were up there for?
2: I really, I've never even stopped to think about it, Matt, because you know he left in the late '70s and went to Philadelphia, and from there he went to Montreal before coming back. As, as a player-manager, um, I, I did the majority. Well, I don't know that I did the majority because he came to the big leagues in 63, I think, whatever it was, and that was 11 years before I came on the scene. So I did my share of him. I did his 3,000th hit. Uh, he had it off of Steve Rogers in Montreal, and, um, of course, I had 4192 when he had the hit off Eric Shaw and the Padres hit Riverfront Stadium. So I was fortunate to be around for a lot of them, and and I can say uh, unabashedly that he's one of my dear friends in life. The two guys that I was most close to um, uh, over the course of my career, and far as far as uh, t- players are concerned, and I I made it a point of not getting a, or too close to guys because. You know, and the older I got, the further the distance uh, became because, uh, you know, when I retired, I could have been the great grandfather of a lot of those guys. And, but during the early days, Pete and Joe Morgan were great friends of mine. We developed the friendship early and uh, the friendship lasted forever. Joe died, unfortunately, a few years ago. And, but I still uh, uh, confer with Pete either by text message or by telephone. I texted him the other day to, uh, wishing him happy birthday on the 14th. And um, it's, it was a pleasure watching him However, I've often maintained when people have asked me, you know, for whatever it's worth, who, who do I think was the greatest hitter in the history of baseball? And I would say without any fear of argument from my perspective, that would have been Ted Williams. I think Williams was the greatest hitter that ever stepped on a baseball field. And, Uh, when you look at his track record, it's just stupid that somebody could have had a career on base percentage of almost 50%. And that that's impossible as far as I'm concerned. So, uh, but I was blessed to see Pete and bench and I was with Johnny last night. Um, He's in town and, and and Morgan and Perez, the big red machine teams. Uh, I was very, very fortunate. My timing was impeccable because 74 was year one. Then they won it all in 75 and 76. So, my timing could not have been better, and I thank God for that.
0: Marty Brenneman, when you're calling a game like, you know, when you know that Pete's 4192 is coming, do you prepare for it differently than, than the thousands of games you had done in your career?
2: No, I, I really didn't. You know, I, that, that was one of those records that we knew was going to be broken. You know, a lot of times, you know, for instance, this is a poor example, but you might not, you may go into a ballpark and not expect to see a guy hit four or five home runs in one game. You don't expect that. Uh, But we knew that Pete's record was going to fall. It was just a matter of when and who it was against and where it took place. Um, I I really didn't give a lot of thought. The only thing I was sure of was that I had enough material dealing with other players that had had great uh, uh, careers. But in terms of what I was going to say when when Pete got the hit, um, I'd ever planned that. The interesting thing about that, however, was the club was in Chicago over the previous weekend to play the Cubs. And um, Pete was a hit away from tying the record. And, and uh, it was a Sunday afternoon game. Uh, there was rain. There was a question of whether or not the game was going to be played. And in the 31 years that Joe Nuxhall and I worked together, the only time that we were ever selfish, we had an incredible relationship that got better and better and better as, as the years went by. But both of us were selfish enough to say, I want the hit. And we made no, no, no bones about that. And we had been together long enough so that we could throw that out there toward each other. And, and everybody, both of us would understand. Um, and on, on the, um, the Sunday afternoon, well, he had already tied the record. He'd already tied the record going into the Sunday game. And he, uh, he hit a – he the first two times up, I had one of them. Joe had one. Um, he, he went out. And then in the seventh inning, Nuxall was calling the play-by-play, and, and, and Pete hit a rocket to shortstop deep into the hole. And uh, Sean Dunston was playing shortstop for the Cubs. And I think uh, fate entered into this because it was not a shortstop in the National League and maybe not in all of baseball that had a better arm than Dunston did. Mm-hmm. In terms of accuracy and in time, in terms of the kind of heat that he could put on a throw when he had to. And he went into the hole, I think a step or two on the outfield grass and backhanded the ball and made a perfect throw. He got Pete by a half a step. That would have been the record breaker right there. And Joe had the shot. And I used to tell him later on, I said, Hey, you had the shot, pal. I said, I can't <laughs> help what Dunson did. And then, of course, we came back home on Monday night. And in front of a big crowd at Riverfront, he went hitless. And then on Tuesday night against Eric Shaw and the Padres, he got a single his first time up to break the record. He levels about bat a couple of times. Shaw kicks and he fires. Rose swings. There it is. There it is. Get it! Uh, it was extremely exciting. Uh, it could not have happened to a guy who devoted so much of his heart and soul into playing Major League Baseball. Uh, he never left anything on the in the clubhouse when he went on the field to play, and that was day after day, game after game. So, uh, for him to get the record, and, and I, you know, when you think back on on what might be records that will go unbreakable, uh, that certainly has to be one because. I think you have to consider the time and the era in which we are in as Mm -hmm. far as baseball. You're not going to have guys that play that long anymore because there's too much money involved. Um, And so I don't I don't think that record will ever fall. Uh, Yeah, I may be wrong, but I really don't think so.
0: We think of you as a patriarch of a broadcasting family. But where did it come from for you? Did you listen to baseball broadcasts growing up? Tell me a voice from your youth that may have inspired you, if that's indeed true.
2: Well, I did. I, um, I was born and raised in Portsmouth, Virginia, which was certainly in the broadcast uh, signal of uh, the old Washington Senators and, and the Baltimore Orioles. And um, as bad as uh, Washington was, and they were horrible, um, I would listen to them simply because I was interested in hearing the guys that did the games. Uh, Never dreaming that years later I would become friends with Chuck Thompson, who was a voice of the Baltimore Orioles and, of course, the Baltimore Colts. He made the great call on that Alan Amici touchdown against the New York Giants back in the 50s in the NFL. Um, And and I listened to him because it was magical for me. That was obviously a time when TV had really not, exploded on the sports casting scene. And so this was our link uh, to major league baseball. And I would listen to those two teams. And then later on um, I really became a big fan of a fellow by the name of Bob Prince, who was a voice of the Pittsburgh pirates. Mm -hmm. Um, He became a dear friend of mine in later years, but the guy that probably planted the seed that one day uh, and a seed that I never realized at the time that I would one day get into this business. I was going down the radio dial, I guess, in 1955 or 56, uh, and came across a broadcast of the Brooklyn Dodger game. I don't even remember who they were playing. They were playing at Ebbets field and the guy that was doing the play by play just was magical to me. Um, the guy's name was, um, Nat Albright was not Vince Scully was not any of the names that you would expect but Nat Albright as i found out later was recreating games dodger games from a studio in Arlington Virginia
0: this is the old thing where they would use the morse code or the teletype yes, and they exactly. would, they would re, Ronald Reagan did it in his youth too that's right um, um so it's a imagine creating a ball game uh, an experience from whole cloth like that when it was nothing but data. Incredible.
2: That's exactly right. And he, it, it was magical because he had, he, you could hear the uh, vendor in the background selling beer, uh, oh. soft drinks and hot dogs. You could hear the crack of the bat. Uh, you could hear the crowd noise. And I had no idea what a re- recreation was. I had no idea what that was. That I was 12, 13 years old. And so I listened to him all the time. And I was never a Dodger fan. But I was so taken by him to the point where when I went into the broadcaster's wing of the Hall of Fame in 2000, I found out that he was still alive and still living in Arlington, Virginia. And I found out where I could reach him. So I picked up the phone one day. This is before I went to Cooperstown in July of of the summer of, of, of 2000. And I called him on the phone and I identified myself to him and he knew who I was because he was a baseball fan. And, and I'd been around for a long time. So he said, what in the world are you calling me for? I said, well, I said, I gotta, I gotta tell you that I would, if I ever went to my grave, not telling you what an impact you made on my life and and subconsciously planting this seed to one day do what you were doing, although uh, on doing it on not nearly as tough a level as you did it night in, night out over a period of years, and so I explained it to him, and uh, he was so taken by it that he broke down and cried on the telephone. That he had such an impact on a person, in my, in this case, me, and we had a nice chat, and and I think he passed away. I don't know, five or six months later. Wow. But. Um, it, it, he was just something. He, he I've got a picture hanging in my baseball room of Nat Albright recreating a Brooklyn Dodger ball game. And then um, I read in a book some years, a long time afterwards, that he had gotten permission from the O'Malley family to broadcast these Dodger games and broadcast them into the southeast. And Walter O'Malley realized that this would be. Uh, a form of advertising that you could not put a price tag on if enough people listened and became Dodger fans and made the trek to Brooklyn and Ebbets field to see the Dodgers play. Um, so that, that was, that was the way it went for me. And then later years, after I got into the the broadcast business, I was working at a thousand watt radio station in Salisbury, North Carolina. And I used to listen a lot to Milo Hamilton in the early days of, uh, the Atlanta Braves, uh, when they moved to Atlanta, and and Milo was the first voice, along with a fellow by the name of Larry Munson. And then, of course, I got to know Milo extremely well uh, in later years when he was with the Astros and before that with the Cubs and the White Sox, et cetera.
0: Well, you know, there's so much beautiful stuff in there. The, the gesture of you reaching out to Nat Albright is so beautiful. I'm sure that you have felt young baseball fans and young broadcasters who have reached out to you um, in your life and in that way it's you're part of a chain you're part of a continuum and there's kind yeah. of an immor- there's an immortality to the art even as the world changes obviously we can all connect to uh, the visual of a baseball game so much but baseball on the radio still carries a magic that it had for you even if today's youth doesn't realize the magic i contend that it's still there part of the exchange because of the uniqueness of the craft of doing play by play
2: Right. Oh, I don't disagree with that at all. In fact, I think if there was, if God ever deemed there would be one sport that would be more in tune and in step with radio than any other, it would be baseball. It was then. It is now. And it, you know what? Uh, it's going to be interesting now with a with the chaotic situation involving valley sports and 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 bankruptcy and, and everything going on and where baseball on television is going, you've always got rock-solid radio where there's nothing that interrupts that. It may change from station to station, but it's always there for fans. Uh, it provides background noise in many cases for people fooling around at home. I know before social media uh, came into existence, Joe and I used to get a lot of mail um, in September, the last season of a baseball game from shut ins and from over the road truck drivers and mm-hmm. the company that we provided for them uh, and and how especially from the shut ins, who in many cases, we were their link to the outside world and, and how sad and despondent they were that in three weeks or a day after tomorrow or whatever the case might be, the season would be over. And they would no longer be able to look forward to turn on at night and listening uh, to a Reds game.
0: There's a responsibility in that relationship for you, isn't there? When you know that you're a part of somebody's life in that way, you've got to, you've got to be prepared, right? You've got to be yes. solid at your job. I wonder if that motivated some of your habits throughout the decades.
2: I think so. Especially coming to a town like Cincinnati. Um, it always will be a baseball town. Maybe, it's getting taken a hit right now because of a guy by the name of Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals uh, <laughs> that have become a big time a big time operator now after many years of being an also ran and thank God for them because of uh, the fact they have Joe and and they put a good team around him. Uh, but you know, I remember when I came, the first thing one of the officials of the Reds said to me was, "There are neighborhoods in this town where you can walk down the street at night." And you will never miss a pitch because everybody will have the Reds on radio. Um, Probably less now because of of, of how important television has become and virtually every game being on TV. But at the same time, there will always be an audience for radio as far as baseball is concerned. And those dear souls that turn that radio on religiously and listen to us, I don't think we ever lost sight of, for one thing, If they don't like us, we're not going to be around long to begin with. And Mm -hmm. if they don't like your style, they don't like your approach, and they send enough letters or text messages today or emails or whatever the case might be to the ball club saying, get this guy off the air, we don't like him, then sooner or later they're going to make a change and and satisfy those people. So I never felt that my, my priority number one always was the people that turned the radio on at night.
0: Marty, um, I want to ask a couple questions about the craft, the act of doing play by play. How did you keep score? Did you use a pencil or a pen? And did your, <laughs> did your technique change as your career went on?
2: No, well, I, no, it never changed. I, I, uh, I've got all of my scorebooks, and I, I've already talked to the Reds Hall of Fame, and one day I'm going to donate every one of them. Uh, and they can find a place to put them for fans to come in and go through year 74 through 2019. Wow. Um, guys used to give me a hard time because I would put the lineups in my book in ballpoint pen. I scored the game in pencil, but I scored it in number one leaded pencil because of the darkness, and I would be anal about that. Guys would. I'd have a guy come into the booth, and we talk about getting together to play golf. And and I would say, well, give me your telephone number. And he'd reach for my pen. I said, uh, 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 no, 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 no. You don't touch those. Uh, use the pen and write your number down. And they used to give me hell about that because Marty, I was. So- <laughs> I,
0: I never heard of a number one pencil. My whole life, all I used was the number two. Of course, there's a number one. I never realized it.
2: Matt, you can't buy number ones anymore in a in a stationary store. I used to order them off the internet because they still make them. But I was I just felt like when I used a number two and it was so light, I had to bear down even harder to make it darker, and eventually I'd break the uh, the point. I would travel a, a um, I would travel a pencil sharpener with me. And not not just one of those little things where you put it in and turn. I would have a one that you plugged in, and I would have that thing sitting between uh, Joe for thirty-one years, and then my last number of years with Jeff Brantley. And I would sharpen those pencils uh, during the ball game because I wanted that pen. That pencil to be as precise and as pristine as it possibly could.
0: Amazing. So, <laughs> so, so, set the scene for me in your booth. You got an electric pencil sharpener between right. you and a partner. You got yeah. a you got a pile of number one pencils. What else did you have to have to do the job?
2: I would write the lineups down and the defensive formations, for lack of a better word. Yep. And then blue ballpoint pen. I would put the stats in red ballpoint pen. And my uh and 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 other than that, I would have a number of of both in case one went out, I would have probably a dozen number one pencils. um I would obviously have a uh, iPad or a computer
0: mm-hmm.
2: and and basically that that probably was it uh, along okay. with the statistics the statistics that you got from both clubs and notes,
0: yeah. Uh, of course. Um, it, uh, a friend a friend had offered to me, he gave me a one-minute uh, sand timer or a one-minute egg timer, yes. if you will, because mm-hmm. you, just to remind me to give the score if I hadn't given the score, was that an instinct that became ingrained in you?
2: I, I You know what? I had that early in my career, and it's interesting you bring that up because uh, that's one of the things that Bob Prince told me. When I got into mm-hmm. Cincinnati in 74, he said, do yourself a favor and go out – and get the sands of time and every time that thing runs out you give the score and then you turn it over again and let it start all over again and i there were many years uh I think I got better toward the end uh that I really uh, you know I, I didn't give the score as much as I should and I think what you do is really good because it's a constant reminder um I, a lot of people would say to me you know you didn't give the score for five minutes but he said i could tell by the tone of your voice that things were not going well that night I'll <laughs> <right."> <laughs> that, yeah. is, that is
0: that has always been one of my favorite things to do is to tune into a ball game wherever i am in the world and just yeah. try to figure out from context clues what is the score what inning we might be in like yes. where are we see if i can figure it out before they tell me and from tone you can do it sometimes right
2: that's good that's uh, good
0: What's something that you had to do to prepare uh, for every game? That if if the game started and you hadn't done X or Y, um, that you did not feel ready to go.
2: Well, the biggest thing was I would I would historically get to the ballpark before any bot any of the other broadcasters. If it was a seven ten game, and we were at home. Now, obviously, it changes when you're on the road. But when we were at home, I would be in the radio booth by. Two fifteen. Um, I'd go down there. Uh, I, I used I referred to it as my quiet time because there was nobody there. Uh, I was there to do whatever the heck I wanted to do. If I wanted to do some background work on the Cubs, if the Reds were playing them, uh, I would do that without people constantly coming into the booth and talking and whatnot. And and then I would try to have everything done all my stuff done by 545 latest latest and if anything interrupted that then I felt completely discombobulated when we went on the radio I know it was it was in my mind but I just had a a certain pattern that I tried not to deviate from um, and and more often than not I was able to do that and, and it was wonderful being in that booth and nobody was there. And, and then they would start to come in probably 3.15, quarter to four, mm-hmm. or something like that, which is fine. If you so- had
0: your day like that, and yes. you we're in a good place at 545. Could you then be social and talk to people and maybe still pick stuff up that would inform the broadcast or were you eating and just kind of getting your ducks in a row?
2: Well, we'd kill birds, more than one bird with, with a stone. I would, uh, we'd all get together and have dinner. We'd go into the press dining room and um, our guys would be together. Oftentimes I'd sit with the, uh, the visiting broadcasters and and uh, you know you can have dinner and still pick up information um but before that 545 i was obviously down on the field uh, or in the clubhouses and the clubhouses and talking to uh, players and managers and and then hanging out around the batting cage for a period of time during batting practice and Mm -hmm. because you can pick up invaluable information uh being around them and 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 them knowing that if, if this is inside stuff that they don't want publicized, uh, I think I, I gained a reputation, like all of us should, that if, if you say it's off the record, it's off the record. And that won't be used. And as long as you honor that, then they know they can tell you things that won't be uh, coming back at them because you use it on the air that night.
0: It's so essential to actually physically talk to people and put yourself down there. I'm sure there's some broadcasters who uh, who perhaps don't, but everybody I've talked to for this pod understands the the value of that. I, I want to go back to this this moment of of you alone in the ballpark and that quiet. You know, there's this trend of mindfulness now and and meditation that's that you find that on an empty ballpark it, it is there for you um early on in that quiet time that you said and then you see the whole ballpark come to life right like some of the vendors start to show up the cleaning people that's right the crew you see everybody and and i wonder if it helped you feel a sense of of ownership of like this is my ballpark so you have the confidence and the and, and the gravitas you need to carry the ball game through the night because that's your place you just watched it come alive all day.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't I, I, I say there's nothing more beautiful than a well manicured golf course because I'm so involved in the game and, and love the game so much. But it's the same thing as ball as ballparks. And I don't think you get a full feel of how absolutely beautiful a well manicured baseball field is with the stands and everything around it than then it is when you view it from an empty perspective where nobody else is in the ballpark. It's laid right out there for you. Uh, I'll never forget the first baseball game I ever saw. My mom and dad took my brother and I uh, to Washington, D.C. Uh, in 1954, I guess. Um, I was 12 to see the um, Washington Senators and the New York Yankees play. Mm-hmm. And it was a surprise for us. Um, and I remember, and it's one of those things that I think every kid experiences, just when he sees it, when he walks up that ramp and into the ballpark, and there it is all out there in front of him where you come in from the third base side, first base side, home plate, whatever. We came in through the first base uh, side, and the first impression I had was, it was the greenest grass I'd ever seen. I had never mm-hmm. seen grass as green as that. Um, and that's that stuck with me forever., uh, but I'm still amazed at the job that the groundskeepers do. Uh, I don't think they get enough credit. Uh, I think there's a competition amongst that fraternity uh, to make sure that nobody can outdo him, whoever him might be. and mm-hmm. And I think it has a tremendous impact. Uh, and I think they know that. When young people constantly are coming to a ball game, and seeing that layout for the very first time.
0: When you're watching Griffey, and obviously Griffey was a legend as a kid. You probably knew about Ken Jr. when he yeah. was in high school. Was it Molar High? Is that where Griffey yes. was? Yeah. yeah. Um, because obviously his dad was a Big Red Machine member and then would come back around uh, to be in Cincinnati again at, at the end of his career. Um, it, did Griffey have that look and feel of somebody who could be like Mantle? Uh, from a young, a young, young age.
2: Funny thing about that is, Matt, I, I, I came across Junior when he was about this high. <laughs> I mean, I never forget. Um, there were Sparky had a rule when he managed a club that the kids could come into the clubhouse after the game if the club won. If the club did not win, then they were not allowed into the clubhouse. But uh, oftentimes they'd be in the clubhouse before the game, and you'd have you have Junior, you'd have uh, Eduardo and Victor Perez, you'd have Pete Jr., and all of them were running around. And I used to uh, come across Junior, and I'd swat at him, and I'd say, get out of here. Go find your mom and, and, and settle down and watch a game. You're getting in the way of your dad's trying to get dressed, and here you are running around like a chicken with your head cut off. And so we, we – and then years – then they reached a period – in his youth where he disappeared for a number of years. We rarely ever saw him. And I'll never forget the first time I saw him, uh, after probably two or three years, um, he showed up one day with his dad and I couldn't believe it. Hmm. I couldn't believe how big he was. I couldn't believe how ripped and sculptured he was. And we oftentimes talked about that after he came, you know, came back uh, via the trade from Seattle. Um, but in high school, at Molar High, he had then what a lot of people said was an absolutely perfect swing, and that was God given. I, I, as as much of an impact as Senior played on him, and Senior's been a dear friend of mine forever. I, I really believe that God gave this young man the gift when he came out of the womb that he was going to have mm-hmm. a absolutely perfect baseball swing, and uh, you know the only regret that i have for him i don't know whether he views it that way but he was hurt so much after he came from seattle to cincinnati he missed so much time um the years in which he was healthy um was dominating i mean it was fun to watch him play uh, his ability to go get the ball in the outfield his ability to swing the bat um, but marty the, uh, even
0: with all those injuries you you still saw and called Number 400, number yes. 500, and number 600. Any one of those stick out to you as, as, well, as a well, moment? Let me, let me
2: tell you an interest, interesting story about uh, number 500. He, um, I guess he was sitting at 498. And one day he called me over in the clubhouse. He said, you and I have to talk. I said, okay. He said, you know it's going to happen. I said, yes. I want you to call it, man. And I, he said, you've known me since I was small. He said, it's important for me that you call number 500. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'd be thrilled to as long as it doesn't come in the third, fourth or seventh inning. And he's like any ball player and know what the hell I'm talking about. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I don't do those innings. I, you know, I was working at the time with a guy named Steve Stewart uh who's now is in Kansas City. And I said, Steve has the third, fourth, and seventh. He said, I, I don't care about that. He said, that's immaterial to me. I want you to call it. I said, no, you don't understand. I said, we all have an ego in this business. My ego is not big enough that I'm going to take it away from somebody who has rightful ownership to the third, fourth, and seventh inning. He said, You don't understand. I am demanding. I said you can't demand a damn thing from me. So it got to the point where we had to have a sit down with uh, Phil Castellini, who was the COO of the club, and I, I explained to Phil. I said, "Phil, look, I do, I, I'm not doing this." I said, "It's not fair to the people I work with." Would I like to have a call in his home run? Yes, I said. But I'm not. I don't have that big of the only way we rectify the problem was that the club put out an official news release saying that Junior had made this request. Hmm. And that I would do each time he came to the plate, that particular at bat, and they made it. I said, "You got to make it perfectly clear that this was not my idea. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to blow somebody away that I got to work with every day. If 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 I felt like if it came in Steve's inning, then Steve had the right to call it." And so it worked out. Uh, number five hundred did not come in the third, fourth, or seventh, um, and it came in St. Louis on Father's Day and his dad was there, and his mom was there, and his whole family was there. The pitch. And a high drive. Hit back into deep right field. Junior has just knocked the door down to the 500 clock. A high drive into the lower deck and right. Number 30 touches them all, and boy, what a Father's Day
0: gift for Satan. The dugout empties as he rounds third, getting the glad hand. From Mark Berry, greeted at home play by Adam Dunn, now
2: Jason LaRue, followed by Sean Casey, and each of them will get a piece of Ken Griffey Jr. before he gets back into the dugout, getting his 500th home run to right field. You know, a few years go by, and now he's sitting at 598. And I go to the club and I'm waiting. I'm just, I'm not saying a word. And I walked through the clubhouse one day and he called me over and he said, Guess what? I said, We're not going through this crap again, are we? He said, Yeah. He said, "I. You got to have, I got to have you call number 600. And uh, fortunately, it, 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 we did the same basic thing. But uh, he hit it down in Miami, and I think there were maybe thirteen people in the ballpark <laughs> when he hit it <laughs> but but number five hundred was really an interesting situation
0: you know you know the thing is like some people don't realize you know, and maybe some do by now, but as you say, everybody's got an ego, and you are a teammate with your broadcaster, the same way those guys are teammates with their club. you know right now, the cubs are rolling, and I was just reading about their chemistry. And uh and Dansby Swanson who's making 177 million dollars said the key is no egos because <laughs> because because you gotta put that stuff aside and actually right. be a good teammate. And it's uh I'm sure those kind of conversations between broadcasters have gone on now for decades, like different all right, different milestone coming. But Junior's the star, the game is the star, and the player can dictate it. That's beautiful stuff. Um, wanna ask you about your relationship with Joe Nuxall, um, who I knew first as a record holder for being the youngest pitcher i believe in the history of major league baseball youngest player youngest player, he was, the
2: youngest player. What yeah.
0: was it 15
2: yes outrageous
0: yes. outrageous um but then you guys worked together for uh, for for 31 years uh, as you said and this is this is a moment where we ought bring in on our our little uh, video stream here and on the audio um my producer Ryan Porth who has bit, man. he has a bit of memorabilia on his wall in the back? It's something involving both you and Joe Ryan. Tell him what it is.
1: It is the Marty and Joe bobblehead. Right, it is amongst all the memorabilia down here in the in the Reds' man cave. One of my prized possessions. Um,
2: well, I appreciate that. That was the first time that I had ever been a part of a bobblehead, and 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 they they asked me. Uh, would it be a problem if we put both of you on the, I said, absolutely not. I said, we're joined at the hip. Then we should be uh, on a bobblehead. And uh, since that time, I think there've been four other bobbleheads that that they've done of me. um, One of which was with my son, Tom, when he was with the club. And then the other was individuals. But the one you have Ryan, I think probably is something of a collector's item now, because as the years have gone by, Uh, you know, most people don't want to give them up every now and then you'll see them available and Mm -hmm. they go for a rather princely sum. Now, I think,
0: you know, when Marty, when you were talking about Nat Albright, the broadcaster for Brooklyn, who was recreating games and you had the chance to tell him I was thinking about Ryan because Ryan tell Marty what he meant to you as a kid. Well,
1: I mean, my dad and I, you know, as red season ticket holders, we would listen to most road games on the radio, you know, when we were in the garage You and and Joe were the sound of summer for me growing up. You know, I played imaginary baseball in the backyard, pretending that I was Marty Brenneman, you know, in Anderson (laughs) Township in Cincinnati when I was five, six, seven years old. You know, everybody talks about you, Marty, but Joe, you and Joe had a rapport and a chemistry that was just unbelievable. 31 years. Like, how important was that chemistry to the art of the broadcast that you guys put forth? you know every single night
2: that's a good question Ryan and and what you say is true um i don't know of two broadcasters that were any closer um than joe and i were and the interesting thing was as the years went by we got closer and closer and closer and 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 golf played a major hand in that because when i took up the game Um, then we would go on the road and and do a night game and go back to the hotel and go to bed and get up at six o'clock in the morning and go out and play golf and be back at noon so Joe could take his power nap before we had to go to the ballpark. And we were just very close. Um, The 31 years of all the good things that have happened to me in terms of recognition and whatnot, uh, the 31 years equals the longest that any two guys had ever spent together in a radio booth. And that equaled the record of Vin Scully and Jerry Doggett with the Dodgers. And, and uh, you know, when you consider how transient our business is and how guys are always leaving because they think the grass is greener somewhere else, um, that's, that's a long time for two guys to work together. And Dude. thank God we loved each other because I know situations, and I won't mention names, where there are guys working together that really don't care for one another. And that would be like a hell on earth to have to go to work every day, knowing you're going to go to work with a guy uh, for three hours or however long it is that you really don't care for. And fortunately, Joe and I had a great, great relationship.
0: Marty, tell us some of the thing the ways that that manifested. like if you got to write something down in the scorecard does did Joe know to fill a little time there for you, or if if he was struggling to find something, did you know how to help him with that? You guys had each other's back as you do the games, right?
2: Yeah, we did, but we knew each other so well, Matt. It got to the point where uh, if he stopped a sentence in the middle of it, I could finish it and vice versa and be right ninety nine point nine percent of the time. I relationship. And I used to tell people, don't single me out. In fact, I was so aware of his importance in this town. He's the greatest sports figure with all due respect to Pete Rose and with all due respect to Oscar Robertson, who, even though he played high school basketball in Indianapolis, we all know what he did when he was here. He's still around. Um, I realized that Joe was a guy in this town. I mean, people, revered him. I never heard a fan say a negative word about him. I never saw him short or curt or nasty to a fan. Um, I learned an awful lot from him and the way he carried himself. And, and, and just simply by working together, we had a, a, a it was almost a spiritual thing Uh, how well we knew each other and how well we could anticipate where he might be going or he could anticipate Mm. where I might be going. Um, It was just, it was a, it was a togetherness, uh, a duo made in heaven. And, and it was funny because the guy that Joe worked with before I came was Al Michaels Mm. and Al left to go to the San Francisco Giants. And Joe, it took Joe maybe I don't know, maybe three months into the 74 season, where he would not at times refer to me as Al on the air. And every time, every, every time he did it, he was devastated by it because he thought it, it was hurting me. And I finally said, look, don't worry about that. I said, I can understand how you're, how this is happening and it will be something that you eventually will grow out of. And he did but he was always concerned about my feelings and 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 not and not making me feel like i was a second class citizen because he couldn't get my name
0: right that view from the perch when you sit above home plate and you get a chance to really see all the ball players and everyone moving around it's what's something that you can see about a ball game or notice about a ball game that the fans at home or even the fans down below in the seats uh, cannot notice that uh, that is special to you.
2: Well, I, I I don't know that I would call it special. I would I would certainly say it's it's uh, it's trying to gain an insight into what might be coming up. And that is when I see a hitter li- left the on deck circle, I watched what the outfielders were doing and what the infielders were doing before that guy ever got to the plate. Whether he be a left hand hitter, right hand hitter, whatever the case might be. I wanted to get a feel quick as to where they were going to position themselves uh, for a given hitter, and it would be time after time until you know, if, if it was a veteran player who'd been around for a number of years, I pretty much knew what they were going to do and, and how that could change over the course of a season because over the course of a year, a player would start to get a little bit tired. His bat speed would slow down maybe a bit, not all of them, but a lot of them, most of them did. And now that changed the defense. Uh, you're playing, you know, whoever it is in April, and, and you watch the way they start to position themselves. And then you fast forward to July or August against that same team and that same player, and maybe they're playing him a little bit different than they played him early in the year. So they're the things I I used to look for.
0: That that makes all the sense in the world. In general, I'm I'm learning to f- watch the fielders when I'm trying to track the ball. If there's ever a yep. doubt, watch the absolutely.
2: Fielders, yep. Right?
0: Um, and then I want to ask for some of the best advice you'd gotten in your career that you'd like uh, to pass on, uh, Marty, as part of this continuum and this opportunity for young broadcasters to learn from the greats. Um, What what's something about doing the game itself, about the craft itself of play-by-play that you think might be helpful?
2: Well, yeah, the biggest thing I tell them is to be prepared. Uh, You know, don't go on the air and you're not prepared for the broadcast, whether it be on TV or be on radio. Uh, Know the personnel uh, of the team that you're playing, uh, operating under the assumption that you know your team, Uh, but stay on top of that. Uh, And spring training every year that was, that was like going to school for me because Um, I'm seeing players I had not seen before that were coming up out of the system or players on a team that you're going to see during the regular season, uh, in a spring training game and, and they have new guys. And so you have to really go to school. I think, excuse me, in spring training to, to gain a feel for young guys that you didn't see last year, but you're going to see this season, um, know the rules as best you can. And I, and I'd be the first to admit that reading a baseball rule book sometime uh, you need a five beta Kappa key to understand what the hell you're reading, but um, you still have to do it. Um, But, you know, I talked to young people or did not so much now because I'm out of it, but I would have young guys in the minor leagues uh, or guys that were in the high school, or college that were majoring in communications, and they wanted to be a major league baseball broadcaster, what advice I could give them? Once you get the job, if you're any good, and if you improve on your craft because you're being exposed to a game or games, whether it be football, basketball, hockey, baseball, whatever, if, you're, if you've got the ability, you're going to get better simply because you're doing games. Now you're doing them on a daily basis, if that's the case, or a weekly basis. And don't be concerned about jumping the gun and taking the first job that's available. If you're any good, there will be people out there who will know about you. And mm-hmm. they will take care of that angst that you might have because you'll have an opportunity to move up. I said, also, and you got to face reality, I'm a firm believer in the Peter Principle. And is you you will eventually, if you're not Major League talent, you're going to rise to a position that you can't handle. And your talent will tell you where that position is and at what level it is. And if you're not good enough in the long run to get to the MLB or the NFL or the NBA or the NHL or whatever the case is, come to grips with it. And be happy that you're in the business and doing what you wanted to do. And if you're not happy with it, then you have to find something else to do with your life's work. It is an as you well know. I don't need to tell you because I know you know it. It's an incredibly competitive business that we are in. And we have jobs that people lust for. They would love to have our job. I don't know of a person in the 46 years. I did Reds baseball that had a better job than I did. And the doors that it opened up for me to do NCAA tournament basketball uh, for 15 years and do 11 regional, I mean, NCAA Final Fours and, and, and work in the Big Ten and the ACC and the SEC and all these other conferences, all that was as a result of baseball, which I still maintain is the best job you can have. Uh, on a local level in play by play sports. And mm-hmm. if you don't aspire to work for a network, which I never did, it's the best job there is. And we should be blessed and we should thank God when we go to bed every night that we have the job that we have.
0: We'll leave it right there. Marty Brenneman, thanks so much for the time. Keep uh, keep enjoying your life. Keep making content out there and uh, keep playing golf. Hope you are.
2: Oh, I believe me, I will. And be sure, Matt, tell my boys I said hello.
0: I have indeed told Marty's friends in the Cubs radio booth, hello, and we'll do so again next time I see them. Some great life advice in there from a legend. A couple things to follow up on here on the PBP. His guy that Marty loved as a kid, Nat Albright, did 1,500 Dodgers games. He was never at a single one of them. Nat Albright recreated the game flow entirely using telegraph reports sent in via Morse code at the ballpark, and then translated by Western Union as he did the broadcast. Sometimes he did games after they had happened completely, using the full transcript of what happened. He and other broadcasters who did this stuff would use a Foley artist, like in old radio plays, doing the crack of the bat, and having the crowd sound ready, and the vendors and everything, like Marty talked about. Many, many broadcasters did this, beginning as early as 1909, including, as I mentioned, a young Ronald Reagan And that's what made it so cool when Reagan joined Vin Scully at the 1989 All-Star Game. He got to sit with Scully for Bo Jackson's leadoff home run. I was watching live at the time. I remember uh, Reagan going, hey, at Bo's power. That was my Reagan impression, by the way. Then uh, Vin Scully asked Reagan a question while Wade Boggs was at the plate. Does it feel a great deal different sitting
2: here doing a television game as opposed to the days of recreating? It is different. This is I can't get quite used to this. Hey, that looks like it's going there, too.
0: Eric Davis to the track. There it is. Gone. Ronald Reagan and Vin Scully watching back-to-back homers from Bo Jackson and Wade Boggs off of Rick Russell. I loved that moment so much. So anyway, recreations was the norm for baseball broadcasting, especially for road games, until the Yankees sent Mel Allen on the road with their team in 1946. And obviously it extended into the fifties for Marty to hear. So I love that Marty Brenneman fell in love with baseball via a fake broadcast. He fell in love with an artifice. He got hooked by the same thing that I did. The idea of bringing it to life and his game wasn't even a real game. It's amazing. A couple other quick things from that interview that resonated. How about him using the number one pencil? I think that might be my favorite thing I've learned in the whole damn process. I didn't know there was a one, but of course there was a one. Folks, wait until you see the number three pencil. Oh, it's going to blow you away. And the story of Ken Griffey Jr. wanting Marty to do the big home run calls. How Marty didn't want to be known as a guy who took that call away from a partner. The negotiation of ego for broadcast teammates. Uh, I mean, it, it makes sense why he had such a beautiful friendship with his longtime partner, Joe Nuxall. Just a beautiful thing. You could tell how much it meant to Marty. All right, next week on the PBP, a truly great radio voice, one of my absolute favorites, and maybe yours too, Tom Hamilton, the Cleveland play-by-play broadcaster since 1990, a gem of a guy and a passionate, emotional broadcaster. Really looking forward to that. My teammates on the PBP are Ryan Porth, who is my producer. And a, uh, I just love that Ryan got a moment to, to talk to marty in this episode that was really really cool my collaborator is james vickery the theme music comes from the great kurt morrison of Tributosaurus. please find the pbp voices of baseball on the odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts it is a product of 2400 sports odyssey and major league baseball the pbp voices of baseball i'll bring you the people who bring you the game